Good morning and welcome to the audio cast of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. This is volume 11, issue number 31. And this week we are going to do and discuss update number 40 in COVID-19 data. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. All right, everyone, let's get started here. So this week, uh, COVID issue number 40, we started to see some unfortunate increase in case volume in the United States based on the new Delta variant that's here. Um, this is an unfortunate revelation, um, but not unexpected. So. It appears that the vast majority of the cases that are occurring right now in the country, based on the Delta variant, which is the most common circulating variant of SARS-2, um, the cases are almost all entirely in unvaccinated individuals, which is roughly half of the country at this point. This, unfortunately, again, is not an accident because there is enough circulating human immune weakness or immune naivete that the virus has the ability to mutate and jump from human host to human host um, in unvaccinated individuals. The mRNA vaccines appear to be doing quite well, and we don't appear to be seeing any major, major breakthroughs, although there are rare cases of uh, somebody having both vaccines from the mRNA uh, type, either Pfizer or Moderna, having uh, breakthrough cases, but the vast, vast, vast majority of those are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and they're not spreading to others. So that's all the good news. Um, we have no evidence right now that the the vaccines, the mRNA type especially, have any weakness to the Delta variant or the Lambda variant that's coming. So that's also good news. As it stands today, the United States has had 34 million cases and almost 608,000 deaths as of the writing of this newsletter, which was on, uh, let me see, July 19th. The roughly 3,000 more deaths in a two-week period is the lowest death toll that we've seen in any two-week period for, for months and months and months. So overall, although we're having another surge or spike on the way, we're still in quite good shape if you've been vaccinated. And I still stick with my mathematical observation that you have a 99.9998% chance of survival once vaccinated, and the vaccine safety for the mRNA vaccines continues to look exceedingly good. Okay, it is now time for me to change direction with one of my thoughts regarding the mRNA vaccines in children. For a while, I've been following sort of the German ideology that high-risk individuals from the age of 12 to 20 should get the vaccine, but others, it's up to the parent to decide, not really a mandate across the board. But I'm no longer following that paradigm or that belief, and here's why. Um, a lot of risk analysis in children in the recent weeks and opinions on masking in schools have been thrown around for quite a while. And the recent interview with Dr. Danny Benjamin, a professor at Duke University in the Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and the principal investigator of the North Carolina School COVID study about, you know, COVID in schools and how it was transmitted between child and child and child and teacher and teacher and child. Um, that discussion with him led me to believe that uh, at this point the safety is so good that we really should be 
shifting gears and vaccinating everyone that we can to prevent this virus from continuing to mutate and cause more trouble down the road. Dr. Benjamin, or as I call him, Danny, my former residency classmate a year ahead of me, is a very thoughtful and honorable person. So there's a lot of trust factor available for me when we had our discussion. And according to Danny, Dr. Benjamin, the COVID vaccine has already surpassed the necessary amount of time and number of inoculated children over the age of 12 to steadfastly discuss safety as a net known entity. In the history of vaccine development, there has never been a case of a new unknown side effect being discovered six months post any individual vaccination. Enough people have been vaccinated to see a signal. As was the case with Rotashield a few years back in the late 90s, we did find a susception signal about three to four years out from the launch of the vaccine that caused the, the vaccine delivery to be halted. But that was because it took three to four years to get to a certain amount of children to be able to see the signal. Uh, according to Dr. Benjamin, the mRNA COVID vaccines we've given so many already, which is roughly 7 million doses in children, that we're already at that point. We've seen the signals, we know what's available, and we know what the side effects are. He did add a clarification post-interview, which, by the way, the interview can be heard on Apple Audio Podcasts. It comes out on Sunday, uh, July 31st, or it may be August 1st. I think it's Sunday, August 1st. So you can listen to the entire interview there, but just for a point of clarification, he added that the adverse events, those known as AEs, that are discovered late in the life cycle of a vaccine which, you know, with the mRNA vaccines, we saw myocarditis come on, you know, happened relatively quickly. Um, they were only on the market for about six months, primarily because the amount of people that were getting the vaccine um, was initially not huge, but then went up very quickly. And as soon as the numbers started increasing, we saw the signal in a very short period of time, in a few months. So based on that information, we are likely at the point where we've seen everything we're gonna see. Um, is there a possibility that we could find something down the road? The answer is always yes, uh, but history doesn't dictate that to be the case. The one place we don't know any answers yet is the children under the age of 12, because those studies are still ongoing and we don't have good data. But as of right now, in the 12-year-old and up age range, we are pretty confident, and I am very confident in my trust in Dr. Benjamin and his data and all the data that I've studied over the past year and a half, um, that I believe that the adverse events you know, that are related to the mRNA vaccines are known and that we really should push forward. Um, the discussion that's out in the media airwaves about possibilities of fertility issues and female hormone issues, there's not a shred of evidence that that exists. Um, and we don't expect that to happen. And there's been no data that's ever happened with any vaccine in the past. So I would think that's a red herring. So Based on the weight of the evidence and my trust in Dr. Benjamin, I am now steadfastly changing my direction and recommending the mRNA vaccine for all children that are 12 and over, 12 years of age, that is and over, regardless of risk or comorbid health condition. Changing my mind is a reflection of the changing data, safety of the vaccination versus contracting the virus and my trust in Danny. I, I really take these decisions very seriously as I impart this information to you. I always make this decision based on what I would do with my own children and your child as well if they were my patient. That being said, this is a personal choice and not one that I would force on anyone. As always, I'm here to help with data and decision making and that is all. Okay, 
A big takeaway, what I'll call takeaway number two from the interview, which I hope you listen to because Danny is an excellent, excellent speaker and educator. But the second takeaway from this was that masking worked in schools. All right, so Danny's group looked at over 100,000 students in North Carolina and wanted to see what happened in the fall and then again in the winter with spread of SARS-2. And essentially what they found, and Dr. Benjamin stated without you know, without any hesitation that no matter what happens moving forward, we should be back face-to-face in school full-time as masking work to stop the spread of SARS-2 in school. His study showed that. We have great data there. So regardless of the vaccination status and the SARS-2 volume in the area, school activity is safe if masking is in place. That, that, that's going to be a big question if we need to mask. But either way, we need to be in school regardless. Okay, there's a lot of fuss in the last year over masking for good reason because it's a major annoyance, terrible for the environment, all this thrown away masks, and difficult socially for children because they can't see facial cues and many other things. That is not, you know, not to be taken lightly. However, we've never faced a virus of this infectious capability coupled to its morbidity strength. Therefore, we really need to think about our frustrations in a new light, children's health and in-person education. I, I really cannot begin to to talk about the frustrations of what happened over the last year and kids not being in school. We've seen the repercussions over the past year with mental health problems, weight gain, diseases. It, we can't go back there ever again. So I, I wrote a statement in this newsletter. The most important event that must occur in the future, full stop, is that children need to be in school face-to-face, full-time, forever. We can no longer sanction an educational nightmare That was last year's virtual learning debacle. And it was all that and more. So if we need to suffer masks, which I hope we don't, but if we need to in school and out in the environment to have in-person school, then by golly, let's do it. In my mind, we should all get vaccinated and prevent this problem from manifesting as it is starting to again with a Delta variant flying around in the unvaccinated individuals. But we're Americans. Not everyone chooses the same path, and we have to live with that. Almost all cases that are occurring now are in unvaccinated individuals, making the threat of all kinds of dysfunctional methods like lockdowns and virtual school leave the lips of some in power, which makes me somewhat crazy. We should never go back to that reality as it will haunt us for decades as our stunted children's health and economic economic trillion-dollar handout that was left behind has to be reckoned with somewhere down the road. These are issues that are going to play out in the next two decades. So I wholeheartedly agree with my friend that masking in schools should occur if there is another major spike in disease as many children will not have the opportunity to receive the vaccine when they are young, coupled to the fact that they are not the major spreaders of the disease to begin with, but need to be in school no matter what. So if masking is the reality of that to happen, let's do it and just move on. I still don't understand the rationality behind masking in sports outside. The air data, you know, the data when transmission in the air outside is pretty much negligible. So that to me makes no sense. But that all being said, I would wrap this entire diatribe up in two simple sentences. Vaccinate everyone over 12 if you can, 12 years of age that is, and wear masks if we have to if there's a major spike coming again. That's just the simple take home from this. I hope you listen to the podcast. Uh, the interview is 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 really full of good content. I'm still learning to be a great interviewer. Long way to go, but I still hope you enjoy the content side of it. Okay, let's move on to some of the quick hits. So an article in New York Times Magazine called The Kids Are All Right 
Why Now is the Time to Rethink COVID Safety Protocols for Children and Everyone Else um, by Wallace Wells is available in New York Times Magazine. This article follows perfectly the above discussion that we're just having as this article dives deep into a child's COVID health risk overall. The statistics that I've been showing over the past year plus time frame are mirrored in this comprehensive article. The risks of death are infinitesimally small overall compared to the total case volume in children. The risk of complications are very, very small. Simply put, children have low risk. But again, that risk is not zero. So let's not, you know, mince words on that part of it. Therefore, you know, for me, again, we look at all the data and understand that if we are a society that vaccinates effectively and uses masks where necessary, unlike, unlikely necessary in children, but if needs be, that will be, especially in young children. Currently, life is almost back to normal pending a wholesale variant shift in its ability to be protect, be evasive of the mRNA vaccines. So adults and young adults are the vast majority of COVID spreaders, especially the super spreaders. So I would recommend again that we vaccinate everyone and not worry about masking the children so much if everyone's vaccinated. But we have to play this out the way it plays out depending on how the COVID variants surge in our society. All right, next on the list, COVID-19 and multi-inflammatory syndrome is very rare in children. A new study from the United Kingdom quotes, as I quote here, within COVID-19, there were 6,000, excuse me, 338 hospital admissions, 259 went to the ICU, pediatric ICU that is, and eight deaths occurred. Within PIMS slash TS, which is their version of multi-inflammatory syndrome, there were 712 hospital admissions, 312 PICU admissions, and less than five deaths. Males were 52.8% of COVID-19 admissions, similar to other causes of admission, but were 63.5% of PIMS slash TS admissions. Children and young persons aged 10 to 17 were 35.6 and 29% of COVID-19 and PIMS TS admissions respectively higher than in all admission and influence admissions in 2019 and 2020. In multivariable models, odds of PICU admission were increased amongst neonates and decreased amongst 15 to 17 year olds compared to one to four year olds with COVID-19. Increased in older young people and females with PIMSTS. An increase for black compared to white ethnicity in COVID-19 and PIMSTS. Odds of PICU admission with COVID-19 were increased for young people with any comorbidity and were highest for young people with multiple medical problems. Increases in risk for PICU admission associated with comorbidity showed similar patterns for COVID-19 and all admissions. In 2019-2020 and influenza admissions in 2019-2020, but were greater for COVID-19, end quote, Harwood et al. 2021. So again, Following the theme of risk as a means to choose to vaccinate, use lifestyle decisions or other decisions, we must have the data. Here's another solid piece of data showing very, very low risk overall. However, never interpret this as no risk as parents of the eight deceased children and the 259 seriously ill children speak to the other end of the coin of choice. We almost measure a reality of risk tolerance. So let me summarize. Based on current data, I believe that the virus is more likely to plague us at all ages past 12 years old with worsening morbidity and mortality with each passing year and life, lifestyle negative decision. 
the balance of the data tells me that the mRNA vaccines are less risky on balance overall than actually contracting the natural disease. Risks occur primarily with advancing age, comorbid disease association, and occasionally are sex genetic based. We know that multi-inflammatory syndrome in children is exceedingly rare. Roughly 73 million children and adolescents are under age 18 in the United States, based on the census. There were 4,196 MIS cases and 37 deaths overall with a median age of nine years. Death overall under 17 years of age from the CDC was 335 individuals. Long COVID is an unknown but previously believed to be less than 1%. Brain atrophy, loss in smell, and taste sensory ability and, and, and MRI findings of loss of brain tissue is still an unknown volume. Autoimmunity, especially in female gender, unknown, but known to follow inflammatory viral diseases for which COVID is a serious inducer of inflammation, appears to be a problem. So in my conclusion, it is a database conclusion again, and also a trust-based conclusion in Dr. Benjamin, the mRNA vaccines appear exceedingly safe and better risk proposition than any of the above statements of disease potential outcome based on a COVID natural infection. So those are my two cents. All right, let's move on to variants. Variants continue to be a hot topic. SARS-2 version B1.617.2 Delta is now greater than 50% of U.S. cases and in some areas already 90%. Data for the Delta variant is still showing significantly increased transmissibility between 40 and 60% higher than the original U.K. strain. The mRNA vaccines are still working quite well. The breakthrough cases in vaccinated persons with a Delta variant have been almost entirely asymptomatic with little to no risk of outcome negativity. But that's not 100%. That's almost 100%. However, this variant is beginning to rage in the previously uninfected unvaccinated populations, raising a few major problems. One, increased transmission in communities causes people in power to make bad decisions regarding in-school and general intra-community movement. We do not want to return to the days where churches are closed while casinos and restaurants work at 50% capacity with masking to walk in the door or walk to the bathroom, but otherwise not mask. None of these things ever made sense to me. But if we didn't have to worry about this, people in power wouldn't make decisions that didn't make sense. Number two, the increased viral activity will mean increased viral replication, increased mutation possibility. Thus, we could end up with a more potent variant that, as Dr. Benjamin calls it, changes the whole lock and puts us at risk of a um, bad outcome, even if we're vaccinated with two doses. So we don't want to see that. Three, countries that locked down and effectively avoided the early strains are now in worse shape as the Delta variant is raging in virally naive populations with a worse variant. This is the cautionary tale of India and Southeast Asia. Again, we see the naivete of humans thinking that we can control a 120 nanometer virus built as this one is. There's a lot of reality to the earlier statements that all earlier measures were to flatten the curve to prevent healthcare from being overwhelmed and not to halt the virus entirely as scientists knew this to be impossible. We are still in uh, similar territory. Flatten all the curves and live life. All else makes little sense to me. If we vaccinate, we have very little to worry about. National Geographic has a very good comprehensive article on the Delta variant. There's a link in the newsletter, so you can click it. It's very, very well done. In the Lancet uh, Journal, we see some data on the Delta variant in Scotland. It appears to be double the risk of hospitalization versus previous circulating variants in the unvaccinated populations. That's SHAKE et al. 2021. Still zero evidence that the Delta variant is more problematic to children at any age. 
There is a new strain in Peru and South America called Lambda that I will be watching closely. It is responsible for over 90% of their cases with similarly high transmissibility and similar morbidity to Delta. The rub is that the previously effective COVID vaccines in South America that were made in China are appearing poorly to respond to the new variant Lambda. There is good evidence that the mRNA vaccines work well here. This is Mishra S. 2021. Now a quote from Planus et al. 2021. I quote, We examined its sensitivity to monoclonal antibodies and to antibodies present in sera from COVID-19 convalescent individuals or vaccine recipients in comparison to other viral strains. Variant Delta was resistant to neutralization by some anti-neutralizing antibodies and anti-RBD monoclonal antibodies, including bamlanivimab, which were impaired in binding to the spike protein. Sera from convalescent patients collected up to 12 months post-symptoms were fourfold less potent against variant Delta relative to variant Alpha, B1.1.7. Sera from individuals having received one dose of Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines barely inhibited variant Delta. Administration of two doses generated a neutralizing antibody response of 95% individuals with, full, with titers three to five-fold lower against Delta than Alpha. Thus, variant Delta spread is associated with an escape to antibodies targeting non-RBD and RBD spike epitopes, end quote. So it's a lot of mouthful there again. This study notes that the antibody response in vaccine individuals is lower against Delta by three plus fold, meaning that the ability of our immune system to respond to the altered spike protein by binding to it is weaker than it was to alpha. This is not good, as this is a beginning sign that the lock is starting to be changed for immunity that may push us to need a vaccine boost or God forbid a new vaccine. However, we are not there yet clinically, which is the place where the rubber meets the road as the patient, our patients that we're seeing are not getting sick if they've been vaccinated with two doses of mRNA vaccine in any significant volume. Okay, I want to repeat this part from two weeks ago because of the importance. There's a very disturbing study in MedRxIV that's showing mild to severe cases of COVID are causing relatively similar issues in brain tissue loss. It's not a good thing as we do not do a good job of regrowing brain tissue once it's damaged. They looked at 394 patients and 388 controls who'd received a brain scan, MRI, before the pandemic had affected them and then after developing the illness. Only 15 of the 394 patients required hospitalization. Unfortunately, they found a significant loss of brain gray matter, especially in regions related to taste and smell. The article is Duaud et al., D-O-U-A-U-D et al., 2021. So why does this matter? We do not know who will be at risk for this type of inflammatory brain tissue loss, and this is not a good thing. We also don't know how this will play out clinically but I can guess based on other studies that the effect will be dysfunctional sense of smell and taste. The other issue is that some studies are showing 5% loss in sensory function at six months post illness. Couple these two data sets and we have a picture that's painting a not positive appearance for the ability to maintain normal sense of taste and smell post COVID natural disease. For me, it's another reason to think about the vaccine. So, Talenti, T-E-L-E-N-T-I et al., 2021, had this to say. There's a realistic expectation that the global effort in vaccination will bring the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus to pandemic under control. Nonetheless, uncertainties, uncertainties remain 
about the type of long-term association the virus will establish within the human population, particularly whether coronavirus disease, COVID-19, will become an endemic disease. Although the trajectory is difficult to predict, the conditions, concepts, and variables that influence the transition can be anticipated. Persistence of SARS-CoV-2 as an endemic virus, perhaps with seasonal epidemic peaks, may be fueled by pockets of susceptible individuals and waning immunity after infection or vaccination. Changes in the virus through antigenic drift that diminishes protection and or reentries from zoonotic reservoirs. Here we review the relevant observations from previous endemics, epidemics and discuss the potential evolution of SARS-CoV-2 as it adapts during persistent transmission in the presence of a level population immunity. Lack of effective surveillance or adequate response could enable the emergence of a new epidemic or pandemic patterns from the endemic infection of SARS-CoV-2. There are key pieces of data that are urgently needed in order to make good decisions. We outline these and propose a way forward. This article is a really good read. The reality is this. We have too many unknowns still. However, it is likely that we're going to live with this virus for a long time, if not forever, more likely forever. Thus, it is likely that everyone will see this virus at one point in time or another prior to the end of their respective lives. Preparing for that day is all that we can do, and vaccination makes the most sense despite all of the misinformation and fear. If you choose not to go that route, then route number two would include targeted mask use in high-risk areas and absolute 100% unwavering focus on your immune health through quality diet, stress reduction, exercise, chemical avoidance. These are my two cents at this point after 16 months of data diving. Let us all choose our paths with more data to guide us because that is the only way we should be choosing paths. Okay, one last section. We found some Guillain-Barre in association with a Johnson Johnson vaccine. Guillain-Barre syndrome is an ascending paralysis where you lose the ability to use your muscle function that occurs in humans following infections with certain viruses and bacterial diseases and also with corresponding vaccines. Quote, based on analysis of vaccine adverse event reporting data, there have been 100 preliminary reports of Guillain-Barre syndrome following vaccination with Johnson and Johnson vaccine after approximately 12.5 million doses administered. Of these reports, 95 of them were serious and required hospitalization. There was one reported death. Each year in the United States, an estimated 3,000 to 6,000 people develop Guillain-Barre syndrome. Most people fully recover from the disorder. Guillain-Barre syndrome has been observed at increasing rate associated with certain vaccines, including seasonal influenza and the vaccine to prevent shingles. End quote. That is from the FDA website. So Guillain-Barre syndrome is very rare, but very serious. The same disease and signal has not been seen with the mRNA vaccines. So therefore, again, my conclusion from all the data so far is that we have plenty of mRNA vaccine available in the United States, making the need to use the other vaccines with this rare but potential risk not useful. I wouldn't do it. So that's sort of the sum total of the data for this week, COVID virus update number 40. I hope this inf information was interesting. And don't forget to check out the interviews that are available for the Women and Children First podcast. There are two. Dr. Paul Smolin and I had a nice discussion about his history of podcasting over 11 years, his handing the baton to me, as well as his top 10 list of parenting advice, which are which just is great. And the second podcast uh, that's coming out uh, 
on the 2nd or 1st of August, Dr. Danny Benjamin. That one is is all COVID and is worth your time. So I hope you listen to that one as well. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Hug those children. And until next time, I'm Dr. M signing off.